All right, folks, how are you? Who was just in that one just then? I heard it was amazing. Um, and then who was in with uh, Dr. Henry Cloud? How was that? So good. Just so many great things happening. Um, and how many of you just arrived today, just come for the Sunday? Brilliant. Welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, sorry if we're just a bit fatigued and tired and um, underslept, but it's just been an, an amazing time so far. Just shout out some highlights. Anybody kind of just shout out what's the highlights so far? Coma. John Mark. Baptism. Yeah. <laughs> I think I probably uh, upset quite a few people doing that. Um, any other highlights? Worship. It's been beautiful. The spiritual warfare seminar, yeah. Meeting new people, so good. The weather. Snakes in the V kids, absolutely. We have a reptile zoo, including a python, in with our kids. How's that? Uh, so it's amazing. Uh, well, this morning um, we always just like to get together as uh, men and women at Focus. And uh, we never quite know what we're going to do in these moments, but we want to gather and celebrate this morning. And I felt in my heart this phrase, I've been trying to work out how to do it and what to say, but celebrating manhood. Celebrating manhood. I was saying that to someone the other day and in our church, a guy in our church, and he said, dude, careful, careful. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, well, man, you know, we may get cancelled. And just in this, this fear, there seems to be this sense of a, a kind of repression against just celebrating who God created us to be as men. And I know there's a richer story in our culture around that, which makes it complex. But I kind of want this morning to put a flag in the ground and celebrate being men. And... And we're going to do that in a few ways. I'm going to do some theology, because I think that's really important to reestablish a few things. And then I'm going to invite a couple of friends up to kind of then talk a bit about that and answer questions. Um, but let's pray before we do that, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're with us. We thank you for the value of being a man. And Lord, we celebrate that. We honor that because in honoring that, we honor you and your good design and choice over us. And Lord, we pray in this cultural story that has some baggage to it, where the church has gone wrong, Lord, we, we don't want to repeat that, but we want to, in a godly way, move forward as men of Christ and live into all that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, let me just open up this. I know as someone from England, I'm stepping into quite a complicated story in America about what it means to be a godly man. I've been trying to catch up over the years and I've heard stories around Promise Keepers. How many of you were in the Promise Keepers movement? And the reaction of that against, not yet, not yet, Henry. You can grab a seat, enjoy. What do you need, bro? So right there, uh, if you go up these stairs to the right, or there, but that building is there. So promise keepers, if you go this way, mate, go up those stairs there. Henry's trying to find the restroom. Someone show Henry the restroom. Amazing. But promise keepers and that sense of calling men into godliness, but apparently, and this is, again, hearsay, I wasn't around, but also encouraged men to embrace kind of a sensitive side. And for some people that went too far. And the new machismo kind of responded in response to that. And you had folks like um, John Eldridge writing books around men in wilderness and almost romantic wilderness and trying to call men into some kind of uh, uh, maleness in that sense. And then you had um, certain preachers in Seattle calling people, almost like a drill sergeant, calling people into a warrior uh, manhood and uh, some found that helpful, some didn't find that helpful. 
Um, I know a friend of mine who said we need to recover manhood and so he would organize kind of hunting trips. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina for four years and the male and manhood weekends were all about hunting and you couldn't eat unless you killed something. You know, it's just this kind of, this was what they were calling people into. And in all of that, there seemed to be a problem that the church and men are trying to work out what it means to be a man. And in that context, also, we have the new battles of, is there such a thing as gender? Is there such a thing in our culture, particularly in the West Coast? And many people are feeling, because of all these phrases like toxic masculinity and men have so-called oppressed others, and maybe that's true in some cases, that even just saying it's okay to be a man, we value being men, seems to be something which we need to keep secret or, or try and repress in ourselves. But the result is there's a gap which we need to fill, which is confidence and excitement about being men, not at the cost of women, but actually just to honor God in who he has created us to be. And that is rooted deeply and richly in theology. At the heart of the pattern of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that God created male and female. You cannot be human in God's design without being male or, he, or female. Genesis 1.27, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Genesis 2.22, the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. There is a complementary nature to men and women. They are distinct, not just biologically, but in the created order. There is a difference, there's a distinctiveness that we both represent the Imago Dei, but we represent that indifference as well. These truths were confirmed by Jesus in the Gospels, and we won't go through all the scriptures. But fundamental to our nature as human beings is the fact that we are created male and female. It's impossible to be human without being one or the other. Jesus said and looked at Adam, therefore, and says, it's not good for you to be alone. And in that sense, also in the created order, is that mutuality that dependence upon one another it is not good for man to be alone or female to be alone that we are interdependent that we are created to be partners that there is something about masculinity and femininity that needs the other this is what christian anthropology is saying we are not isolated individuals completely self-sufficient it is not correct to say i only need jesus that god said we need each other in the design of creation male and female female and male we are interdependent this is what's confirmed in paul's letter in first corinthians in the lord woman is not independent of man nor man independent of woman for just as woman came from man so man comes through woman but all things come from God. That we are interdependent, we are different, and that therefore there is at times a gravitational pull for men to be with men and women to be with women, but as we know there's also a gravitational pull for us to be with women. And not just I'm not just talking sex. There's a sense of interdependency. This interdependency is represented in marriage. This interdependency is also represented in leadership. At Vintage, we take very seriously that we need women and men to be in all positions because we it is not good for man to be alone. That we need the, a man and a woman to see the same issue that we can actually help each, each other in that journey. This is the profound theological foundation of Christian anthropology. Anthropo you know what I mean. We do offer something different. There is a difference according to the truth of Scripture. That begs the question, what is the difference? And I want to do something very vintage at this point and say there is a difference, but the church has disagreed on what those differences are. 
And I'm not going to uh, adjudicate and judge what those differences are. What I do want to share with you is here's how the church is sometimes approaching those questions. I think some ways they're wrong, even though I'm going to call that out, where simply the church describes the differences of what it means to be a male in simply terms of cultural stereotypes. And I do want to call that out. It's harmful to men and it's harmful to women. That when I go on a men's weekend and I'm told to be a man is to fit into a stereotype of wearing camo, having an AK and only eating what I kill. It's like, I just really want a latte and to sit in La La Land on Montana and just kind of opine about the beauty of creation. Am I allowed to do that as a man or do I have to dress up and kill something, right? And I do think we've done a lot of harm. There's a book out there uh, which uh, is extreme in some ways, but very helpful in identifying these stereotypes and how harmful they've been. If you go read the book Jesus and John Wayne, but talking about so much of our church definition of manhood tends to just go back a few decades at a cultural stereotype whether it be Rambo whether it be John Wayne whether it be some kind of stereotype figure that fits who we are and we feel is universally applied but do you see the harm that does for men who go I don't fit that stereotype does that mean Jesus does not approve of who I am as a man and what that also does it seems to be at the cost of what women can bring to the table in that sense as well it seems to be versus women men like to hunt men like to, therefore women don't and what about a woman who goes i like to shoot i like to wear camo does that mean i'm i'm not a woman does that and actually it contributes to the confusion around gender the more we isolate people into stereotypes we're reaping in our confusion around gender a bit of what we've sown as the church of restricting manhood and feminine to really these cultural stereotypes. I want to really just kill those stereotypes in that way. And so if you are here and you've been hurt by a stereotype and you're going, well, I'm, does God even like me? as Am I in the wrong skin? Because I don't fit those stereotypes. We celebrate you as a man of God. That you can be different to that and be a man of God and I want my child my son I want my son to grow up saying dude if you want to wear camo and go kill something to eat it great if you want to be on the stage in musical theater great you can do both to the glory of God and as a man of God so that we do have to call some things out after that, there are some differences, and I want to honor those differences. I've got great friends, um, and maybe you here are in some of these different camps where beyond the stereotypes, if we all agree they're unhelpful, the biblical approach is sometimes different. Some folks go, there are differences. It's called biblical essentialism. There are essential differences in the gender, and we, we try and isolate them. I know many have go, well, women um, biblically are more nurturing, and men are more warrior, protector. Um, I know, for example, Tim Keller has some great uh, seminars on those kind of themes. I think sociologists uh, kind of and em empiricists like Jordan Peterson comes with kind of evidence to maybe support that. The problem is, again, that can over overly stereotype. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying that's one approach. What, a different approach is not so much essentialism in our makeup, but specificity in our role. And so John Mark's book on loveology would, would talk about not so much difference in our makeup, but difference in our role, particularly in marriage, and maybe there's a headship or leadership role, and what that might mean. And again, that's been abused, but not in John Mark's world of the biblical world of, of servanthood, as opposed to lording something over someone. So I'm talking about the best sense of that role. But again, people maybe disagree on that. There's also a third approach which my friend Graham Tomlin, theologian, a bishop in England, I want to read a quote from him that says, look, the he says this, the difference between men and women are real and we instinctively feel them and yet they seem to be undefinable and mysterious. Maybe it is important that we can't define these differences or we would begin to define, limit 
and stereotype each other in terms of them. Persons would lose their individuality and uniqueness in a lazy pigeonholing of others. Of course, that difference is expressed physically in a different shape of male and female bodies. But, and there is also something emotional and psychological that is hard to tie down, but it is there nonetheless. So Graham, Bishop Graham is trying to hold together the uniqueness of the creative story of there is difference. We cannot collapse those differences. But maybe it's okay to let those differences be mysterious. Karl Barth is one also theologian who strongly insists that to define difference is actually to go beyond Scripture. And whenever there's silence in Scripture, particularly on something fundamental, we are wise not to try and fill in the gaps. So I'm not going to adjudicate between Tim Keller, John Mark Comer, and Karl Barth, right? That's a rich conversation that we can have around campfires uh, on nice weekends away. But I am going to, I think, suggest a way forward, which I'm finding helpful right now in celebrating being a man. And I want to talk about two things. The first of all is, first of all, to celebrate. To be very, very joyful in our hearts and amongst each other that God created you a man and he looks at you and he says, you are good. That being a man is a good thing. That you are valued. And that we as men have a vital contribution to the kingdom of God in our masculinity. And not to let the current cultural moment repress that within you. Not to outwork it unhealthily. Not to outwork it in any other way that any gift we have and any value that God has put in us is there to serve and love others. Not to put down and find value because we push others away. But simply to go, God, I honor you in how I have been made. There's a uniqueness to masculinity which I cherish and honor. And even if it's difficult to tie down, I'm going to celebrate being a man. But I'm not going to do that vis-a-vis not celebrating being a woman. So number one, celebrate. But secondly, the, again, I want to help us with this question. Well, what does it mean to be good at being a man? So we can say, what does it mean to be a man? I want to go further and actually help ask the question. And a friend of mine, uh, all of us, probably John Tyson, said it's helpful to reframe the question, not what does it mean to be a a good man or to even to be a man but what does it mean to be good at being a man and he introduces the the concept of archetype versus stereotype he does this very helpfully in his book intentional father which a few of us are using as a roadmap to disciple our teenage boys right now but he talks about archetypes versus stereotypes stereotypes if you don't know the difference they overlap but they are distinct. And the stereotype overly restricts someone into an image of like a John Wayne figure, and I've got to be like that. Whereas an archetype just looks at themes that have been universally agreed are celebrated in being a good man. And actually, when you look at all of them, you go, well, these are just themes in Jesus. And in many of these themes, they're not celebrated that women can't celebrate these either. But universally over history and in the life of Jesus, these six archetypes seem to be places where we can lean in and celebrate being not only men, but being good at being men, growing into maturity as men of God. I just want to quickly run through them. And then if you want to know more, Intentional Father is a great book and has a chapter on these. Number one, a disciple of Christ. To take responsibility and to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number two, a lover of women. That we value the feminine. We value the women in our lives. And we know how to love them well as Christ has loved us. And I think so much of masculinity has been suppressed because we have not loved women well. We've tried to find our value as opposed to them, as to raise ourselves up over them, to oppress them as opposed to learning to love them well as men of God. Number three, a leader. To move out of passivity into leadership. And this is actually something I see is a real need in 
masculinity in our culture right now is the simple role of self-leadership and rejecting passivity as not a godly value or fruit of the spirit but actually embracing being someone who is a leader in our worlds in our environments and again biblical leadership not to lord it over but to lift up those around us and to lead and set the pace and to set the tone fourthly a warrior as john tyson says men need a cause a cause is bigger than a vision more expansive than a strategy and more long-lasting than a season to have something that god is calling us into to be a warrior that we are with god entering into and praying thy kingdom come thy will be done that we're not wandering aimlessly but we are captivated with a cause a god cause in our lives number five a brother what does it mean to have godly friends what does it mean to surround yourself with a community that you can be brothers to one another one of the things that i've been really lamenting i've seen in the christian culture is it seems that when guy not here i'm sure but in some environments that when guys get together, Christian guys get together, it, it can either go one of two ways. I never which, know which way it's going to go. It can either go to brothers in Christ coming together, encouraging, supporting, having a great time, but really actually trying to spirit each other on in Christ. Or just as often it can, it can retreat into some kind of frat party. Like, this is our excuse to be 15 again. Let's crack open the Bud Light. Let's be juveniles again. Let's actually allow the flesh to come out because it's a safe space. It's like, wow, there's never a safe space for the flesh. In fact, I'm, I'm trying to mortify the flesh, not find guys that I can actually be fleshly with. And I'm not saying that this is... I've been in pastor's retreats and I felt I need to leave because this seems like everyone's just finding a safe space to turn off Instagram or, be, or social media and they can actually be at like rush week again. I don't know. You have to help me with where that came from. But I think God's calling us into being brothers in Christ. That we can have fun. We can actually have an amazing time together. But that isn't equated with being fleshly. And then finally number six, wisdom. That we actually lead into being wise men. That God has ordered, a, there's a pattern of creation which is principally expressed to us through the book of Proverbs where that when we live in line with the wisdom of how God created us and how he created the world, we find a life that leads to wholeness and blessing. Just because there's a grain in life that we are to live within. So those archetypes, now I, I like those archetypes because they're not going to reduce you to a certain personality. They're not going to reduce you to a certain activity. They're going to allow room in those archetypes for you to be who you are and your uniqueness but call you into Christ-likeness and call you into being men of God and to go on a journey together with that. So that's all I'm going to say as to set the, set the scene here. I'm going to invite two of my friends up uh, who are more wise than me. The first is Henry. Where's, is Henry at the bathroom yet? There he is. Henry, let's welcome Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud. And then... Also, welcome back. Uh, and then also, um, before you come, I want to in properly introduce you. So, uh, Glenn Packiam is a newish friend. I've heard of him for a while now. Uh, we tried to recruit him a year ago to Vintage, but he rejected us because God had called him to a, a greater task. And he's recently moved from Colorado to take over as a lead pastor of Rock Harbor Church in Orange County. He's a theologian. He's a word and spirit guy. He's kind of like... Um, brothers and we've just kind of got to know each other recently and so he marries together practical wisdom deep rich theology church leadership and we're so glad to have him now on the west coast let's welcome glenn packiam 
So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to give them both a microphone to kind of uh, push back, correct what I've just said, and add their own thoughts. And then we're just going to take questions, because I think this is such an important area. So I'm going to hand over to uh, Gle <laughs> one of you. One of you start. I'm going to do this so you can okay. actually get in the shade. That's great. Hey, everybody. Man, it's great to be with you. It's gorgeous up here, and the sun is shining. It's awesome. Uh, I appreciate that, Gare, so much. I, I, there's several things that Gare said that I really, really um, appreciated. One uh, is just the willingness to name that this has been a complicated journey of the church attempting to try to sort this out and kind of naming where some of those pitfalls are. And I, I also do appreciate that the focus need not be on finding what is exclusive to being a man, but rather what is uh, important. And we don't, it, it, we don't need to sort of draw the line on the other side and say, this is just for us, but at least we can know that if we focus on these things, it will lead us in the right direction and get expressed in its own way. And so I, I just want to affirm that. I thought that was really, really well done. Uh, you guys know what a gift it is to have Gare as pastor here at Vintage, right? It's just incredible. There's, there's a few thoughts that I have. Did you just want me just to yeah, just rattle off a little bit? Okay. Yeah. So I, by no means are these uh, definitive thoughts, but they're just sort of initial ideas that maybe can push us in the right direction. I think when we're talking about what it looks like to be a godly man or to be the, the person, the man that God has called us to be, and I have a 13-year-old son, so we have, we're having a lot of these conversations too, and you know he's got three sisters, and again, our goal is not to say, this is just you and not them, but rather, as you grow, make sure that you're pursuing these things. And the first word that I want to just throw out there to you guys is the word responsibility. I think responsibility is a really, really big word, and you see it in the biblical story where Adam abdicates responsibility right away. You know, so it's it's sort of uh, the woman gave it to me, and there's a there's a sense of ducking the blame or the responsibility for it. And I think in our moment uh, culturally today, there's a few ways where we can avoid responsibility. One is the way that we can avoid initiative. Uh, where we say, well, I don't know, is it my job? I mean, you see this again with Cain and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? And so right into the story of sin entering the world is a story of men looking for ways to deny responsibility, either by saying it's blame, someone else's fault, or um, by denying any sort of sense of initiative. And so again, I'm not trying to say that this is unique to a man, but certainly being, uh, being a godly man cannot be less than being a person who takes responsibility. Does that make sense? And responsibility, again, just to outline it clearly, responsibility in the sense of initiative. This is my response. I will, be, I will take initiative for this area in my life, for this part of my life. It's one of the conversations I'm, I'm trying to have with my son where, where we'll say, uh, are you sure that you couldn't say more about this? Or could you speak to a teacher about this? Or if you saw this happening on, uh, you know, in recess time, and sometimes he'll say, I overheard this and I tried to stop this um, argument from escalating, or I tried to tell him, hey, you shouldn't make comments like that. So initiative, but then responsibility also in terms of accountability. Um, in, in, most human con in most situations of conflict, um, the, the goal, and I'm sitting next to the expert here, so I'm going to try to be careful, uh, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Cloud, but I, I think part of the challenge is you don't want to over-own and to say, oh, it's all my fault, because you want to allow place for the other person to own their flaws and their failures, but we can also under-own and to say, well, I, that's, that had nothing to do, if they hadn't started it, this wouldn't have happened, instead of saying over and over again, what's my part of this, and what can I take responsibility for in terms of accountability um, the second one, then I'll stop. There's probably a couple more, but maybe they'll come out in questions. But the second thing that I might just add is I think there's something, um, especially in this moment, that part of what God is calling us to as men of God, as men who reflect the image of God, is the ability to cultivate resilience. Uh, that's become a word that's been really important to me. I've been involved with Barna and their team in doing this resilient pastor project, and we did a whole bunch of research on the challenges that pastors and church leaders are facing, but really it's a challenge that everybody's facing, and if we talk about it for ourselves, um, we could say this, you're going to encounter obstacles in life. You're going to encounter setbacks, and you're going to encounter even your own personal failures. Resilience is not the absence of trouble. It's how we receive the grace of God to persevere in the midst of trouble. And I say grace of God because one of the fruit of the Spirit is perseverance. Uh, it's the ability to sort of endure. 
Um, so this isn't, this isn't pulling ourselves up from the, our bootstraps. This is a way of saying, God, I need your grace again. I've fallen seven times. The Bible says a righteous man falls, and seven times he gets back up. This is not Chumbawamba's song, I get knocked down, I get up again right there. There's something that by the grace of God, we're meant to sort of come back up. And it reminds me of a story, and then I'll, I'll stop after this. It reminds me of a story that the late, great, um, former chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, Rab Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he told about going for his first kind of uh, physical stress test with a doctor, I think, when he turned 60, and he'd never been in one of these tests before, and some of you might know the scene, but he went in there, and the doctor put all these sensors on him and, and put him on a treadmill and asked him to run, and he goes, doctor, are, are you testing how fast I can run? That's what we think about when we think about, like, ah, man, uh, how fast I and the doctor's like, just be quiet, keep running. And he goes, oh, are you testing how far I can run? Yes, endurance, you know. And doctor's like, just be quiet, keep running. And he runs, he's, he's huffing and puffing. Finally, he stops, and the doctor waits, and then he catches his breath, and the doctor removes all the sensors, and he says, what were you testing? And he says, I'm testing to see how quickly your body returns to your resting heart rate. And he said, a marker of health is recovery. A marker of health is recovery. I, I, we have this illusion that if you were a godly man, you would never experience stress. Or if you were a godly man, you would never feel anxious. Or if you were a godly man, you would never f lose your temper. Or you would never get out of control. If you were a godly man, you would never, 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 never. And I'm here to tell you that actually by the grace of God, the mark of health is not that you never experience duress. It's the rate of your recovery. Resilience is this word that I think is important for, for men in our, in our world because there is either this illusion of like men are bad or men be quiet, and so we're sort of like, I don't know where my place is. Look, guys, you're going to get it wrong. And the issue is not if you will experience turbulence or even make mistakes, but how, by God's grace, can we return and recover? That's going to be the key to lasting. First of all, I want to thank our pastor here. I mean, this is a man that we are all blessed uh, to have shepherding us. And, and you know, I was listening to you, Gary. And sorry, I came out. Gary told me, he said, I want you to be on this panel with me. I was doing another session. I ran up and go, crap, I'm late. And I ran up and <laughs> right in the middle of your sermon, but sorry. Um, but somebody that, that you know, you, you have these extremes. There's people that don't talk about stuff like this, mm -hmm. but there's people that talk about stuff like this who really shouldn't. Yes. And yes. we got somebody who, who should be because he's got the, you know, the horsepower to do it. And mm -hmm. So thank you. Um, I'm going to come at this a little from a little different angle because it's kind of the, the world I live in um, where we experience some of, I think, the the – the difficulties in expressing what it means to be a man well, because I'm kind of a pooper scooper in life. I come into situations where sometimes things aren't going well. And I'm going to ask you to look at three areas um, or three aspects of how you be a man or how you are being a man. Um, the, the first one would be in fight. As as Gareth said, one of the one of the uh, archetypes, you know, there's the warrior kind of aspect that's part of the image of God, and women have their own way of warring as well. Um, you are when you put go on a stress test, you've got to ask, what calls me to war? Because I think the godly man, what calls you to war is very different than, let's call it, a less godly man. Because what happens is when, when the call to war, which is when we feel some sort of danger, the brain is wired to, and you've all heard this a thousand times, fight, flight, or freeze. All right? I think the God does this. God is moved to fight. Sometimes he holds back these three directional executions of initiative. Sometimes he moves into a situation. Sometimes he holds back and holds off. 
and intentionally, and then sometimes he hits pause. So are you fighting, flighting, and freezing because of either woundedness? You see men abdicating being men when there's unresolved maybe mother wounds or father wounds. They get into a situation where it's time to stand up and to fight something. But if there's a woundedness, they'll fight it in very destructive ways. Domestic abuse, for example. They get slighted or not responded to by their wife and they respond in rage and anger. That fight function is supposed to be there, but it's supposed to be done for things worth fighting against. And we don't fight just because somebody hurt our ego unless we're bruised. So, so where the ability to push against a situation is happening in a less than Jesus-like way. Because there are situations, your team at work, if you're leading a team, they need you to fight some things. They need you to stand up, maybe fight non-performance by a team member who's bringing the whole place down. Or maybe stand up in the corner office. So the fight function is important. The We need to know when to cut bait in flight. But just watch why. Is it out of woundedness or weakness or immaturity? Second thing that gets in the way, I think, of men functioning as men and leaders and fathers and husbands and buddies and everything is dependency on women. Dependency on women. The Bible is very clear in the beginning that a man shall leave his mother and cleave to his wife. When does a man leave his mother? When he, for the first time, when he has been weaned. And this is really, really important. You started life as a man, and in a way you've got a little different step to take than, than females. You started off in life in a dyad with your mother, or whoever played the mother role. You were in a symbiotic, all of my needs are met by this one love object, this one woman. God says, you, or, or David says, God, you taught me to trust you at my mother's breast. So all of those needs are met by mommy. This is the way you start out. Then something magic happens when your aggressive drives kick in in the latter part of the second year of life. What happens is you start to walk and you start to get mobile and in order to escape that dyad, this other guy comes along called dad and you attach and move towards him and he pulls you out of a dyad which is never designed to be mature human functioning. There is no, nowhere, anywhere is one person supposed to be able to meet all of your needs except in infancy. God exists in a group. He exists in a triad. He exists in community. But sometimes men either don't get enough from mama and they're looking for mama and they fail to be men or sometimes they never were called out from her to be independent from her because we'll never get to be able to be good men to wives or coworkers or other women if we need them in order to feel whole. Mm, good. That's good. That's really good. So the Hebrew word for wean, we think it of, now I'm going to get deprived of the breast, right? Well, the Hebrew word for wean actually means to have dealt bountifully with, which means you got all you needed from mama. Now some of you, some of, um, in fact, I dedicated my first book to two women who saved me from not enough mothering. And they adopted me as my spiritual mothers in college. I was a latchkey kid and, you know, we're going to the whole thing. But some of you might need some mother healing. Your wife can't do all of that. She'll help, but 
she wants you to like show up to. Some of you may have some wounding, but we got to get these dependency issues done in order to be so full good. men. And, and I think the third thing is, you know, testosterone um, is different than estrogen. Yeah. You know, God, it, there is a such thing called male. And the word I want you to focus on there is initiative. Like you said, it's the spark plug. It's the moving. It's the action. Testosterone, if any of you have little boys and little girls, you know there's a difference in that psycho. You know, he's bouncing all over the walls typically, you know. Testosterone is action-oriented. So where our action-oriented is not living out the full extent of what you're designed to do it's either out of fear or brokenness or something and women need you to stand up and i've talked to very powerful i work with ceos wall street and everywhere else very powerful women strong feminists ceos of global entities and they'll tell me you know the ones that are single or divorced say you know i i go out with a man i don't care how much feminist i am if he doesn't open the door or pick up the check he's done <laughs> There's still something about they they want you to show up and take initiative. And so I'll stop there. But that's three areas, I think. That's great. So good. Amazing. So we got a few uh, minutes for questions. And again, try and limit to questions as opposed to thoughts and comments. Great. So the question was, if those who didn't hear, how do we actually acknowledge and celebrate these th theological foundations about there's a distinctive between men and and women? Yeah. How do we stand up for that in the mm -hmm. public context, in the se secular world? Mm -hmm. Any thoughts? I mean, I think it's tricky because you, you, you're going to be interacting with people who have different presuppositions than you do. So that doesn't mean you need to change yours, but it's difficult to ask someone to accept yours when, like even a statement like that rests on several other foundational statements. You know, the Bible reveals truth about God, but then even a statement like God is the creator that, and, they, and then kind of wrapped into that is the idea that the self is received rather than something that we kind of construct. Um, and I, so I think there's some foundational presuppositions that we're gonna differ on and I'm not sure we're meant to sort of go engage a war with people who don't agree with those presuppositions, but that also doesn't mean that you need to give up yours. So I think there's some discernment required um, about being in the world where you, you stay faithful to these sort of convictions um, without uh, sort of being on a crusade of some sort of asking someone else to accept it when there's like three steps that are subterranean to that belief that they don't even agree with uh, in the first place. I think there's a great book. Um, who wrote The Rise of the Modern Self? Yeah, Carl Truman. Yeah, yeah Rise and there's a shorter the version yeah. of that, right? Yeah, Strange New World. Yeah, yeah, I think that is such... Read the shorter version. Uh, but I think it's so important to recognize that these conversations are very difficult to have with people who are not uh, in the same place that we are, not just because we disagree on text, but because The Rise of the Modern Self is a great book to show these are the 10 things that have changed over the last 30 years that have, we've got to this place where we can't really even have a conversation because the, the suppositions are, and the assumptions and the agreed shared territory is not there anymore. And it's the same thing with actually trying to share your faith with someone in a secular context is I've learned that being faithful to who we are in our personal faith doesn't mean I'm trying to convince others of what I believe, um, but to model in a way right. that provokes them to go, Man, what makes you tick? And so in a, in a contested space, whether it be around evangelism or around these truths, model the life of Jesus in such a way that people actually are intrigued and ask you questions. I always say in a contested space, I'm never in trouble if I'm just simply answering what people are asking. That's right. <laughs> it's a provocative church right. that in a secular context yeah. is the way we actually... 
And that's how Jesus, he modeled life in such a way that people were intrigued. And let your life provoke questions, not your words kind of give answers. What? what Sorry, you can't hear me. Yeah, thanks for what you said about the mother wound. About the mother wound. Oh. The mother wound. I think you guys would be willing to hear about the father wound. Father wound. Father wound? Sure. Here. You're the father. <laughs> <laughs> it's gotta be you, right? We've got a legendary therapist here. <laughs> um... You know, when you're building a house, um, there's an architecture to it, right? And it seems, and, and, and what I'm about to say isn't right, but there's some rightness in it. In, thank you <laughs> for that latitude. It's not as black and white, but, but basically when we look at constructing a human, the slab, the foundation, the deepest aspect really is more of the nurturing mother role, who, the primary attachment that builds it. And from there, the secondary processes, like thinking and language and aggression and mobility and all of that kick in, okay? Um, so the father becomes in some way, unless he is the first year of life bonding object, which does happen, but, but he steps in and there is a, there's some very important things, especially for a little boy. I'm watching him to see, how do I be me? And there's some key areas, you know, some of which, you know, we've talked about, but to the degree that he uses the things I talked about, the lack of dependency, he does not need me to build his ego. He's building my sense of strength. He's displaying strength, and he's encouraging and building strength in me. Okay? To the degree that he corrects me in a way that I can use, we need correction from fathers. It's one of the main things that they do, especially with men. And, you know, I uh, do some work with, you know, professional athletes, and you see these NBA and NFL players who hit the grandiosity of a teenager, the narcissism of a teenager, where the whole world, now they're getting written about in the papers and the local papers, and everybody's cheering them. They're 14, 15 years old when it starts. They're king of the world. Well, a lot of them don't have fathers that come in and reduce that grandiosity and that narcissism and set limits on them. A young man needs the limit setting of a father and they get frozen in that narcissism and then they get $100 million at 22 and go give $100 million to a 13 year old and you get what you read in Sports Illustrated, right? And we all needed and need dads that set good limits on us, but limits that are usable, which get internalized as self-control. And they're not usable if they're harsh and if they're angry. And they're not usable if they're not consistent and they're not present. Okay? Can someone write all this down for me? <laughs> well, the Bible says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And a lot of men, and I just want to pray right now. Father, I pray in this crowd that you heal the angry Father in so many hearts and souls right in this room. They have an angry Father, and now their self-correction is angry, and it's critical, and I pray that you heal that with the way that you correct us, which is with strength and love and guidance. So I just wanted to pause there and do that. So we need fathers that correct us and my dad was so so good 
But it's also World War II. I was born late in life for him. Um, I figured that out one day when I was a teenager. I said, I wasn't playing, was I? He was like old. He goes, yeah, but we try to make the most of our mistakes. You know, so. <laughs> but he was a World War II first sergeant wow. in Europe, decorated and all that. And sometimes I didn't have a dad. I had that sergeant that turned and could be harsh. And I remember those, the feeling that I had to, I had to do some things to get those thorns out of me. So that's another, I think, part of it. But so much is the absence. You know what Gare said, like these guys that are, that are proactively doing this program with their sons to, to show up. And then the other thing is show up and call them out. Call out their gifts. I'll never forget this friend of mine I play golf with who was a, he was a famous football player. And you would know the name probably. And we were supposed to play one day. And he called me and says, okay, my son comes. And I said, sure. And, and I'm waiting for Godzilla Jr. to show up. And this artsy little kind of, you know, soft temperament kid shows up. And, and I'm going, looking at him and looking at him. And, and, and then when he introduces me and we, we're walking down the first fairway and, and he's going, you know, da- David, tell, tell Henry about stuff you got going. And he's writing plays and he's in musical theater and all this. And this, this Dick Butkus, I just dated myself, this awesome, you know, gorilla of a football player has got this, you know, ballerina son and he's just glorying in the essence of who that kid was. You could just see the, and the kid was so alive. So I think a father doesn't try to make us in his image like God did, but he helps us find our image of God. And so there's, we could go on and on, but, but these things are important to look at in your own life. Why they call you Reverend? <laughs> Is it Nathan? Yeah. yeah, Nathan. We've chatted. It's really great you're here, mate. Um, I actually want to again just rewind a minute and say, um, I think provision is in both male and female, and it's not necessarily. I, I, it's not my personal conviction that the man is the provider, um, and I think there's provision in both. And so I wouldn't want to kind of say that is intrinsic in manhood versus womanhood, Um, equally with risk-taking. Yeah, I kind of like that picture in Proverbs 31 where she's out buying and selling real estate and he's sitting on his butt with the guys. Yeah, so, I mean, if you want to see a risk-taker, you meet my wife. You know, 18, she went off and had to leave the home and went traveled around the world as a dancer, professional dancer. I mean, she's risk-taking, right? And I love that about her. So um, what I would kind of reframe the question, though, is um, how do we um, withstand maybe what the culture is trying to do, put us into stereotypes in some ways? And actually, ironically, um, suppressing that men can also do various things. So I would start with saying I'm not too sure I would agree necessarily with that's intrinsic and more live into celebrating who we are in Christ to be like Christ and whatever that means for you. Yeah, that's good. I, I think there's maybe underneath what you're getting at too is a question of um, is there a purpose for our strength or, um, or power? And I, I think 
we, we've talked around this a little bit, but the part of the nervousness in this moment about masculinity or manhood is, is it's actually a subset of a larger nervousness about power. And we, we're, we're living in a cultural moment where to be powerful is automatically to be assumed as bad and to automatically be sorted into oppressor and oppressed sort of categories. And Nietzsche actually predicted this. He said, all, we're going to come to the point where there's no more questions of truth, there's only questions of power. And that's, that's the moment we're in. So the ancient Greeks would talk about what's good, what's beautiful, and what's true. And now we set aside all those questions and we just say, well, who's powerful and who's not? And so we no longer ask if a statement is true or untrue. We just say, well, who said it? And if we don't like, if the person who said it is a bully, then we're like, well, I, just, I, I don't like that statement, you know? If the person who said it is in an oppressed category, then we say, oh, we, we got to listen, right? Instead of saying, well, is there, what's good, what's true, what's beautiful? I think what the scripture does that's so beautiful, beautiful scripture, scripture doesn't do away with power. That's the modern solution to the problem is eliminate power. So, man, you don't need to lead or you don't need to provide, you don't need to work, you don't, you know, just take your desire or aggression or power out on video games and there's no action in the real world. I think what scripture does is to say, let's actually redefine the purpose of power. And that John 13 says, Jesus, when he knew that the father had entrusted everything to his care, be, took off his robe and began to wash their feet. And this is what I love about what Gare is saying is it doesn't necessarily mean I've got to be the one out there making the bank and providing for the family, but it does have to look like I'm going to use every ounce of my energy and resources to serve someone else's good. That's the goal. Well, I think there's two things essentially to do, which I'm going to just say very briefly. I think the leading voice right now is so helpful for me, which is John Tyson and his book, Intentional Father. I think every man should read that, whether you're a father or not, because it's really about being an intentional man. And John very clearly says, hey, much of this is going to be discipling the fathers just as it is discipling the sons. And so a lot of your answer is a 200-page book that John has has done and the prize primal path discipleship program is essential for every father here particularly with boys but again um is without children I think you should read it can I share just a personal I mean this this could tap into a lot of science but I'm just going to give you a few examples um so my dad was well into his 40s um, when I was born, and he he grew up in poverty, um, seventh son of thirteen kids, and dropped out of dropped out of school in the eighth grade to support the family, and um, but then started his own business and did well. And by the time I came along, I think he really wanted to live his missed childhood, you know, with me through me. But when I was a about two years old, every Sunday morning, he would come get me out of bed, six o'clock, and we would go have breakfast with him and his best friend. And that's when I learned that coffee is the fuel of life. <laughs> of course, it did stunt your growth, but. And then we would have, have breakfast with him, and then after about an hour or so, we would get in the car and we would drive around town and look at a bunch of his projects or go drive and he'd go find a, a road he'd put me in his lap and teach me how to drive starting really little or then we go feed the horses or whatever and that time every Sunday morning until we we'd come back to it's time to go to church through adulthood when I left home and as an adult when I came back we would do that till he died there were so many things like that that were intentional and structured that 
grounded life and made a space. You know, structure's about time and place. And you don't father on the fly only. But when you make intentional, structured experiences where he can run to you or they can run to you and they know that they're safe and wanted, that covers a multitude of sins. Uh, it's 12.05. We have to finish. But I'm going to ask, uh, maybe Glenn, could you just pray over these men? Just the favor of God. Amen. Yeah, if you're comfortable with it, would you just kind of open up your hands as a bit of a physical posture of receiving? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can call you that. We thank you that we join with Jesus in addressing you as our Father. I thank you for these men who are here. I thank you for the way that they're trying to reflect your image into the world, into their lives. God, I pray for your grace to abound to them in every way. I pray that even before we look outward into the world, we'd look upward to your face. You would help us to catch a glimpse of the radiant, smiling face of the Father. I pray over you men at Focus 2023 <laughs> that you would catch a glimpse of the face of God smiling at you, the delight of the Father in you. May the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord turn towards you and grant you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's just thank these guys for being with us today. And bless you guys. I think we have lunch. And then Glenn will be speaking at our final session this afternoon. You don't want to miss that. It's going to be incredible. So we'll see you then.